Today is Friday, November 6th. The title for our devotional is Change the World. Matthew 5, 13 through 16 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Again, Jesus' followers are called to be salt and light, and out of their being, do. This is just who they are. They can't help themselves. It pours out of them as a result of their inner life being made new by Jesus. Christians who are salt and light exist as such in their communities and all their spheres of influence. This is God's method of reconciling the world to himself and ultimately changing the world. Jesus didn't prescribe an expedited 10-step process to change the world. He didn't write a book in the hopes of selling millions of copies. Instead, He calls his followers to the long game, living as salt and light, transforming their spheres of influence, one sphere at a time. Matthew 13, 31 to 33, Jesus says this. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, till it was all leavened. This is a whole different strategy than the, quote, change the world narrative that we often hear and see. The underlying assumption, it seems to me, is a hope that one day an individual can so expand her influence that she has the opportunity to impact literally millions of people. The question isn't, does God do this? Of course, he regularly does this in scripture. Think Moses, Abraham, David, Jesus, Peter, Paul. The question is, should this be our aim as individuals pursuing God's calling? There are many reasons why I believe this aim to be misplaced, not the least of which is the undue pressure it places on believers who have a, quote, smaller calling to fulfill. Instead, our aim needs to be faithfulness in whatever tasks God has called us to for his kingdom. In his book called Culture Making, Andy Crouch helpfully compares the lives of two of the most influential women in the 20th century. Princess Diana and Mother Teresa, the princess and the nun. The two women died within a week of each other, Diana tragically in a car accident, frantically trying to escape the paparazzi, and Teresa quietly in a convent in Calcutta. The point here isn't to disparage either one of them. Instead, to simply say, for all of us, one path to influence is entirely attainable while the other is virtually impossible. Attaining Diana's position as a source of influence is as statistically close to an impossibility as it gets. Mother Teresa, however, 
gained her influence by sacrificial love, radical generosity, and charity. These are entirely attainable for all of us. Andy Crouch summarizes this idea, quote, for nearly all of us, becoming a celebrity is completely categorically impossible. For all of us, becoming a saint is completely categorically possible. So why are so many trying to become a celebrity and so few trying to become saints? End quote. That's a good question. Instead of trying to change the world, start by changing your world and being salt and light in your immediate sphere of influence. Think about your concept of changing the world. Do you feel overwhelmed with lofty goals you've consciously or unconsciously set for yourself? Are you content to be faithful in being salt and light in the environments God has you in? This is kind of the opposite of a self-help, you can change the world talk. But I think that hyperbolic language often leaves us feeling unaccomplished and like a failure. When in reality, we just need to focus on being salt and light where God has us today. For additional content today, I've linked you to another podcast from this cultural moment. Enjoy. Welcome to This Cultural Moment, a podcast where we talk about following Jesus in the corrosive soil of the Western, secular, post-Christian world. I'm John Mark Comer from Portland, Oregon, where I pastor Bridgetown Church and teach the way of Jesus. I'm here with Mark Sayers, who is a pastor and teacher at Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. And Mark, of course, is well known as a cultural commentator, and we're good friends. And so this is the podcast where we sit down over heart coffee, and we talk about this cultural moment and its intersection with the way of Jesus. And how do we as followers of Jesus, and Mark and I pastor churches, how do we as churches not only survive, but thrive in this kind of a cultural moment. So we've been talking for a number of episodes now about post-Christian culture, how the Western world and out of that the global historic world was shaped in so many ways by Christ, by his teachings, by his vision for what he called the kingdom of God, which was a moral and a socio-political vision, and how now we're at this cultural moment where we're post-Christian, which is not that we've moved on from, but rather we're still haunted by our Christian past, and yet there's this reaction, rebellion against Christ, but yet at the same time we want to carry over so many of the values and virtues of Christ, of Christianity, into the Western world, whether it's social justice, or equality, or peace, and nonviolence, or socioeconomic you know, wealth, whatever the reality is. But it's just not working, and the cracks in the system are starting to show, and there's danger, and there's fear, and you see this in the political moment, politics has become a new religion. And so in this last kind of bonus episode, we talk about is there hope? What's the, what's the future as we look forward? Is there hope for the church in the West? What we have in the progressive West is a culture that's insulated itself from suffering, pain, and death. There is something of the glory of God to be tasted, touched, and shaped by in moments when you are marginalized, suffering, and in exile. So much to talk about. We hope that this next episode 
is an encouragement to you wherever you live, wherever you call home, whether you're in the urban core of a progressive city like Portland or Melbourne, or just have an iPhone and access to this progressive, secular, post-Christian moment and world that we call home. Mark, we're talking about the future. Have we moved on from post-Christian culture to a fourth culture where politics is the new religion, the rise now of the hard left, the hard right, the sense of danger that so much is stake, the world is coming apart at the seams, and if we don't get the right political vision, the right political party, the right political leader into power, then it's the end of the world as we know it. And of course, the nuclear option actually makes that not just hyper, you know, hyperbolic, like there's actual fear of the end of the world as we know it. So I think one of the questions I ask is, is there hope? If the hope isn't in the leftist vision or the right vision, if it's not in a political party, if it's in Jesus, is there still hope for the Western world? Is there still hope for the United States of America, for Australia, for England, for Europe, for Iceland, for Scandinavia? Is there hope for this post-Christian world? Or is it inevitable that there's nowhere to go in the future but more and more deeper into secularism? The options now are just the leftist vision of secularism or the rightist vision of secularism. Is is there any kind of a hope for the church in the West? Mm. Well, I think, you know, there's, there's two ways you can look at secularism. Um, you know, one is we can look at the Western view, which is basically that things will always progress forward and um, things will always move towards, you know, synthesis, um, as Hegel sort of said, that, you know, we're heading in one particular direction. So- and, and just that, I can't stop you now because you're just getting that. We forget that's a Christian idea. Yes. Um, so Thomas Cahill, The Gift of the Jews, yes. one of the most important books I've ever read, just points out what is, it's not his opinion, it's like mm. historical and socio- sociological reality, that the Western idea of progress was based on the story of Abraham, yes. the story of the Old Testament, this idea that there are a people that are moving forward to a greater vision of life, a greater reality. That's not the Eastern vision of the world. It's not the ancient vision of the world. It's not the Middle Eastern vision of the world that life is cyclical and all ancient religious kind of, you know, rites of passage, all based on the agrarian seasons. And like it was this life is cyclical, which you still see in Hinduism and Mm. Buddhism and this Eastern view of the world. We forget that this view of progress is actually steeped itself in Christ. But now we've ditched Christ, but we still want this value of progress. Absolutely. So what we can then do is, as Christians, believe that that's the, that's the inevitable trajectory of where we're going to go. I think, like, as, as we, I think we mentioned in one of the earlier podcasts that Leslie Newbegin talked about, you know, the fact that, in a sense, Christianity had desacralized the world. So it had created this sort of form of secularism where we can't back, go back to the old God. So everything we we're going to battle is now going to be a post-Christian vision. Um, and that that's really, you know, the, the end times battle between the gospel and then the anti-gospels, you know, and, and even the church is going to have that constant pressure for people who want to, you know, move away from the true tradition of the apostles to, to other sort of, um, you know, imposters. So in, in the tension between those two things, we can fall into this sort of hopeless position. And I think listening to a podcast like this, you can even, you know, there's probably people listening going, oh, wow, this all sounds so immense, the challenge. Yeah, hence the bonus session. We were sitting here yes. just saying, man, this is so fun, but it sounds kind of hyper-negative. Yes. Like, well, the world's all going to hell in a handbasket on the left and on the right now, yes. and there's no more hope, and so read your Bible in the morning and pray. Exactly, and hold on. So I think if we actually look at how 
the scriptures you know, describe how God worked through the Old Testament. You see particularly this this cycle that people get into. Like you look at the book of Judges, there's this cycle where the people forget God, uh, but then they remember him. And so much of the the prophet's words in the in the, in the Hebrew scriptures are to remember God. Right. And so there's this thing which happens in sort of every generation has the potential to remember God. Every generation has also the potential to forget God. Um, it's like you can still be born in a Christian family, your parents do everything right, and you can turn away from God. There's no uh, you know, guarantees that we can do the right things that will make someone follow God. So in a sense, I think generationally that's true as well. So if you actually look back over European history, we can have this false belief that, I don't know, in 1200 AD, everyone was a Christian and slowly there was this graph where that just dropped off until our contemporary Right, minus. so if you think of Christendom to the post-Christian secular West, you imagine this line just high on the left going straight down to nothing on the right. Exactly. So you see all these different kinds of – the reality is that you actually see this different model where it's more like a boom and bust economy that you have revivals, you have renewals, you have just before the Reformation, the you know, Thomas Akempis, you know, writing the, the Devotio Moderna, I think they called it, where this rediscovery of this individual relationship with, with God, you have the, the Reformation, you have uh, you know, Wesley, you have the 19th century revivals, you have the Great Awakenings, the Second Great Awakening, you, know, you have these times where a generation gets to a point where they have to turn to God again. After World War II, in my country, in the United Kingdom, there was this tremendous return to God right. um, because of what people had gone through in, in, in the war. Um, I think in the South, in the United States, after the Civil War, there was this, you know, like a lot of, you know, Christianity, um, people had to turn back, you know, sort of in the devastation and after people, the war. Because we think of the South now as the Bible Belt, but actually originally in the early America, it was the most secular most irreligious, most unchristian part of America. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and you even see that in the two-thirds world now, that the growth of the church in places which uh, has, you know, experienced poverty and and doesn't have, you know, the development of the West, you've seen these incredible moves of God. So actually a more realistic question asking going forward is, will God come again? And, and Scripture promises that he does. He promises that he comes at the end of the age, but also promises that when people remember God, when they do what the Scriptures call us towards, that we can have these moments of return. So I think that's really hard and challenging for people to think about because those moments of renewal come when we are at our have lost things. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, even hearing you say that, I mean, I love this idea but it's hard for me not, like my inner cynic is like freaking out right now. Yes. It's hard for me to believe because in my mind I still think, well, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago was, you know, this Christendom kind of height. Everybody was Christian. Everybody mm-hmm. was following Jesus, which is, of course, not true. And it's just this slow, inevitable, there's no irreversible decline. That's like that's the narrative in my mind. And you're saying it's more like a bell curve, more up and down. Yes seasons of revival in yes. the language of the church. So we have we have these parallel stories. So like, uh, you know, near my house, there are now multiple Persian congregations. So you've had in the last 10 years, the um, more Persians become Christians than in the last 10 centuries. Now, the reason for that is because in 979, you have the Islamic revolution in Iran and Persian people from Iran, uh, most Persian people from Iran, and you have a lot of people who were Muslim but more culturally Muslim or maybe not as conservative as the Islamic Revolution 
form of Islam that it created, who then end up going all over the world. Right. Uh, I know some here yeah. in Portland. Yeah. There'd be people in Portland, they go to Canada, they go to Europe, they go to Malaysia, and they're all of a sudden questioning their roots. They're away from home, A lot lost a lot of money. Uh, so you have this predominantly Islamic community who then start becoming Christians in huge amounts of numbers. So they get to this low point. And the challenge for us in the cities that we're dealing with, you're going to have those stories where I think this building that we're meeting in, there's a Cambodian uh, right. community church yeah. who, who meet here, um, you know, who went through the Cambodian Revolution and Pol Pot. And, and God is currently doing lots of things in Cambodia. That what happens is you get to this point of pain. Now, this is really interesting because what we have in the progressive West is a culture that's insulated itself from suffering, pain and death which surrounds itself with not just a form of consumerism, but a form of discerning consumerism. So we're not sort of rocking around in nouveau riche, you know, ostentatious wealth. We have, you know, the locally sourced. Yeah, we're not driving Hummers anymore or buying a 5,000 square foot mansion with jet skis and, you know. Exactly. That's not not our moment. So it's the, exactly, it's the Prius and, you know, you've got the the coffee which is locally sourced from the friend, you know, coffee grower. Yeah, the $7 flat white. Exactly. Yeah. So, So in an environment like that, which also then you think about the entire psychological belief that we've picked up at the moment that any psychological harm or difficulty we have to protect and insulate people from. You see that in everything from the trigger warnings thing that people are talking about in colleges to how we're raising kids at, at schools where now every kid gets a ribbon, you yeah. know, instead of just having a trophy. You know, like I played soccer as a kid and there was just a thing. We knew who the best players were. We knew who were not the best players and that was okay. But now every kid is like thinks they can either be a superstar because their parents and educators and the culture have insulated them from bad things happening. And fairy tales now, like my daughter was reading Little Red Riding Hood and when I read Little Red Riding Hood, the wolf ate the grandmother. Now the grandmother <laughs> faints and hides in a cupboard and is revived me. at the end because oh we can't have death. But those fairy tales operated as a cultural form of tradition which told young people that life was tragic. Right. Life that is hard. Life is hard. Life is tragic. That death is inevitable. And we've protected people from that. So whilst we're completely au fait with sexuality, we fear death. So that's the new taboo. Yeah, that's, you just can't talk about it. You can't exactly. go there. So that's why we're all obsessed with, you know, podcasts about cold case murders because it's fascinating to us, you know. So it's the cultural taboo. Exactly. Yeah, because it seems like secularism of all the worldviews, whether it's Christian or Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or secular, a number of sociologists and psychologists have made the point that secularism, the Western secular worldview, is the least equipped to deal with pain and suffering. Because it has the secular worldview has no meaning or purpose to life. There's no there's no religious, there's no spiritual, this is what it means to be human, this is the meaning and purpose of life. Therefore, the de facto or the default kind of reason you live is happiness. So you yes. have America, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, an entire nation built as a social experiment around the pursuit of happiness. And if happiness is your highest value, and more and more in America, I see people even who are defining good and evil based on does this make me happy or yes. not happy. So like 
The Bible is no longer authority. Church is no longer authority. Family is no longer authority. Happiness is the new authority. Mm. So good and evil are now redefined around hedonism. And happiness is even redefined from virtue, as it was in Greek thought, to what makes me feel good in the moment Yes, is now the new value system for whether this is good or evil, right or wrong. In this kind of a worldview, it's suffering, pain does nothing to you because character formation, like in the past where we'd say this will make you a better person, this will deepen your empathy, your wisdom, Mm. your perseverance, your character in the language of James, that's no longer a value. And so pain and suffering are at best an interruption to the reason of life, which is to be happy. And at worst, if it's something like my wife has a chronic illness, Mm. if it's something or, you know, you go through a divorce or something that you can't take back, then it's it's not an interruption. It's a full-on permanent obstacle to where you can never be happy, therefore you can never live. You know, so it's it's a gaping, I think, problem in the Western worldview. Pain Absolutely. And Absolutely. And and that's why it's a shame. So people will put the awesome pictures on Instagram and hide the fact that they're going through suffering, not even tell their friends, because there's a shameful element, because we don't know how to process yes. it. Yes. I'm even seeing this new thing where people, this happened to me twice in the last week, get cancer, and they barely tell anyone. Wow. And I'm thinking, if, if I got cancer, the first thing I would want mm. is my community to know, mm. pray with me, suffer with me. And it's almost like this unquestioned thing, well, I can't tell somebody that I have breast cancer. Mm. I can't tell somebody that I have statistics. You know, I, I have to keep this a secret. Mm. So it's when you've got that worldview operating, the idea that God will come, you know, it talks about in Deuteronomy, when people, you know, seek God's face, and that almost happens. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, you know, that God shouts to us most loudly in our sufferings. That the idea that God will create a renewal revival moment through us getting to the end of ourselves seems impossible. So if you look at, say, where we are now, we're in a form of exile and it's a form of exile where I think what God is doing is in God always brings about renewal through creating a remnant. Hmm. In in the Old Testament, uh, Judah is sent into exile. And there's this incredible beginning of the book of Ezekiel, which is describing that, where Ezekiel's one of the Jews have been taken to, to Babylon. And he has this vision of the Shekinah glory, which is so trippy. You know, it's like wheels and eyes, and you're reading, like, what the heck is he talking about? The shock of that is not how strange the vision of the glory of God looks like. It's the fact that Ezekiel sees it by the Kyber River in Babylon. In Babylon, not in the temple in Jerusalem, but in Babylon. And you have then in in Ezekiel 10, you have the image of the Shekinah leaving the temple because Israel has become corrupted and going to Babylon. And what that says is there is something of the glory of God to be tasted, touched, and shaped by in moments when you are marginalized, suffering, and in exile. Wow. Those are actually your greatest moments of hope. Yes. So the generation who've been raised on relevance that we spoke about in the previous podcast, who's like, you can fit in the world. You can have all the trappings of the cool progressive world, and you can just be that cool where you're accepted. All of a sudden, we're not anymore. And I reckon that's a moment to be grasped because now all of a sudden, when we're not accepted, we can discover who we really are. You know, we were chatting on the way in about the Unitarian Universalist Church across the street from First Baptist, which we're sitting in the basement of. And somehow we got to chatting about the Founding Fathers, Mm. John Adams, who was one of our first presidents, one of the writers of the Declaration of Independence or the Declaration of Independency, as he called it. 
and was a Unitarian Universalist, um, and how kind of the conservative Christian church has rewritten American history to think of the Founding Fathers as all of these Christians, when in reality they were deistic or they were progressive, they were a Unitarian Universalist or something like that. And there was a Judeo-Christian moral vision, for Mm. sure. And some of them were Christians. Most of the Christians that I most identify with were Plymouth Brethren and what have gone on to become now Quakers and Amish and who refused to take part in the political system because they were pacifist or nonviolent. So it's this fascinating thing, like some of the people that I would relate to the most, the camp that I think I would have ended up in, were actually tortured by the Revolutionary Army, killed by the Revolutionary Army because they would not go to war with England. So there's all this fascinating stuff. But I was so moved. One of the most foundational reads for me was The Churching of America by Rodney Stark, which mm. is this little book barely anybody knows about. Rodney Stark's well-known historian, sociologist out of Baylor University. His famous book is The Rise of Christianity. But he has this little book that barely anybody knows about called The Churching of America, where he just takes the sociological and statistical kind of data of American church history and basically paints this picture of early America as this irreligious, unchristian, lawless, sexual immorality is all over the place, the, the, mm-hmm. pu- the Western kind of pub, prostitute, the brothel on every street, 500 prostitutes following the Revolutionary Army around you know, the Eastern seaboard, and it getting more and more Christian. And he basically makes the point that the kind of early Christianized America that we think of did not start until the First Great Awakening mm. and really until the Second Great Awakening, which was a, a revival in our language. And just by charting church attendance makes the point that per capita, the highest church attendance ever was was in the 50s and 60s after mm. World War II. So in my mind, I think of like, America in 1793, and everybody's in church yes, on Sunday. Yes. And actually, that's the lowest, even lower than the numbers now yes. in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Church attendance was at its lowest then. Mm. And it hit its zenith in the 50s and 60s, which you're saying came out of World War II, where the yes. world was wrecked. All these dads are vets. People mm. are dealing with emotional and spiritual trauma. Mm. And that's this like pinnacle moment of return to faith, Mm. the church grows all through America. But then you have my generation born on the backside of this, and we just see the decline of the church, Mm. church attendance just dropping, you know, through the floor, the rise of secularism. But actually, it's so it's easy for somebody like me to think this is just this inevitable slow march downward towards Mm. secularism. But actually, that's not the American history. That's definitely not global and historic church history. Mm. There's actually a much more hopeful pattern mm. of revival and return. And, and, and what you see in the exile is that in the book of Judges, Israel's so corrupted and they just keep falling back into corruption, into idolatry, which then leads to violence, which leads to oppression. God gives them a chance. They don't listen. So eventually judgment comes and judgment sends them to Babylon. But in Babylon, you then get a Daniel. You right. get this guy who's in the system, but he's following God, and he's willing to take—he's willing to die, like he's willing to go right. You know, the, he's willing to take the martyr option, um, and he keeps Sabbath, he keeps worshiping God, he doesn't bow down, and that's the hope of this moment. That right. at this moment, and maybe listening to this, there are twenty-something Christians, yeah, and maybe they're the only ones. Of their friends. They're the Daniel, the Shadrach, the, Daniel. the Meshach. Exactly. And, and they even look at their Christian mates going, man, uh, you know, they're, they're falling away. Right. But there's something in them and they don't understand what's exactly going on, but they can't give up. 
And I think what's happening is it's like a forest fire is coming through and the Australian Aboriginals would start forest fires. We call them bushfires. And it would actually burn off all of the brush that was not needed and it would allow new shoots to grow yeah. up. Or Jesus so, used the metaphor of pruning the vineyard. Yes, yes. So I think we're at the... We're not at the this inevitable trajectory where progressive secularism goes on or the alt-right rises. That's all going to happen. As Jonathan Sachs, the rabbi of the Commonwealth, says, the world's getting less religious and more religious at the same time. There's those sociological tracks. But what's actually going to happen is there is going to be the opportunity for uh, the cultural Christianity has died in our lifetime and a new remnant is being asked to be formed. So I actually think we're at the beginning of something for people who want to live devoted, orthodox, Jesus-filled lives where I actually want to do this stuff in cities like yours or mine. And that's, we'll wrap there, but, you know, one of the things, fun things that you and I get to do is travel a bit and Mm. talk about Jesus and the Bible and other cities. And the shocking thing to me is most of the, I need to be careful how I say this, but most of the best churches I know that are healthy, thriving, full of millennials, people Mm. coming to faith in Jesus, Holy Spirit like is there and at work, God's felt presence, stories of justice, Mm. renewal, racial reconciliation are almost all, and maybe this is just my experience, but in my experience are almost all in these urban, secular, progressive, post-Christian cities. So it's in a Long Beach or in an Mm. LA or in a San Francisco or in a Boston or in a Manhattan or a Melbourne or a you know, King's Cross of London, these are like some of the best churches I know. Mm. So there are these, and it's not huge. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, mm. 30,000 people mega churches, but these are some of the best churches I know right in the corrosive soil mm. of this kind of a place. So I just can't help but wonder if we're already seeing fruit start to come. Mm. And if these churches that we're seeing that are just thriving um, with all its the problems and issues of any and every church, but mm. are thriving in this kind of a cultural soil, I wonder if they're the first fruits in the language mm. of the New Testament. I wonder mm. if there are the signs of much more to come. So I think that's our prayer for myself and the leaders of Bridgetown and really our community. I know that's the same for you and yeah. Red Church and Melbourne and wherever you're from, pray. And, and may you take Daniel as a template, exile as a template. Good things come out of exile, mm. most namely Jesus of Nazareth. Thanks for listening to this cultural moment, and we'll catch you next time. We'll be back in the not-too-distant future with more talk about the way of Jesus and our cultural moment.